Welcome to Quit Bleeping Around, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve more in life. Here's your host, Christina Eanes. Hey, super achievers. In this episode, I'm interviewing Valerie Friedland. Valerie, an expert on the relationship between language and society, is a professor at the University of Nevada in Reno with a PhD in linguistics. Welcome, Valerie. Thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Well, I can't wait to hear what you have to say. But before we jump into that, can you share a little bit of your background with our listeners? Sure. I am um, something a little more unusual than being a doctor or a lawyer. I am what's called a sociolinguist, um, which is something most people don't encounter in life generally, although it's surprising because I think we're pretty valuable um, when you think about it. But I study basically how language as a system interacts with society. Um, So the types of things we say and why we say them the way we do. So what are the patterns behind our speech? So all those things you've wondered about, those irritating ticks that we hate, Those aren't arbitrary or chaotic. They're actually rule governed and very, very patterned and they're there for a reason. And that's what I study. Oh, wow. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I'm fascinated with that. Um, When I was a violent crime analyst, we would sometimes work with folks on, uh, well, linguistics, you know, on uh, like ransom letters or that kind of stuff, just to kind of figure out who people are based on how they write and what they say. Right. Actually, a good friend of mine is a forensic linguist, which is the type of linguist that helps with criminal investigations. And they have helped in a number of cases and also served as um, an expert for some of those crime shows on TV, because you can look at patterns in speech, either surreptitious Mm -hmm. recordings or look at letters. Um, Even, you know, Kurt Cobain's suicide letter was analyzed by uh, an an analysis of linguistics. And um, also I've done some surreptitious recording analysis for legal trials. There are a lot of applied circumstances that most people don't hope to never encounter a linguist in. And that is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, I think, I mean, it's just, it sounds like it would be awesome information for like entrepreneurs to know or people in sales or, or any of that stuff as well. We'll just well, anybody we'll who just talks, everybody. anybody who talks, right? <laughs> we all want to know how we talk can talk better. And I think uh-huh. it, it's surprising when you actually look at what makes talk good, what makes communication good. It's opposite of what we've learned is good mm-hmm. English. And um, so that's where I come in. I love it. So, well, let's, let's start out then with the topic. And that's those little, what we have been taught to believe are annoying habits of verbal fillers or verbal graffiti. So why are these maybe not so annoying or bad? Well, you know, the funny thing is we think of English as this static entity, as something that was just handed to us, descended through generations in a perfect, pure form of some sort. But we're not speaking German, right? We're not speaking French, which are languages that had a huge impact. In fact, English is a Germanic language. And if you look back at Old English, as anybody who suffered through Beowulf uh, has ever had to do in school, (laughs) you'll know that you don't understand anything, right? You look at that and you're thinking, oh, my God. Uh, I can't read this stuff. So mm-hmm. if language was more pure in f- earlier forms, then we are really bastardizing language because we've changed <laughs> yeah. everything. We've dropped all our endings. We don't have grammatical gender. Our word order is now fixed when it wasn't fixed before. Uh, you know, there are new sounds that have come into English and sounds that we have lost over time. So it's just funny how we have this really strong idea that change in language is bad. Um, and all those little things that we dislike that we call ticks. 
um, from the likes and the so's and the hellas and the heckas, uh, the walk in instead of the walking, the ums and the uhs, all of those are just new forms that have come into the language actually less recently than we think that we notice because they're new. And and Mm -hmm. the problem is when we recognize something as new, that's when we don't like it without realizing that things that we're saying today were new 50 years ago or a hundred years ago. And people probably didn't like it back then to us. Now it's normal and no one finds it, you know, something that bothers them. But if you look at what young people are doing or certain social groups that we may not want to associate with, or certain social, social groups that um, have defining features that those sounds kind of remind us of, that's when we start to get bothered by them. Um, And if you take the long view of history, we really shouldn't be bothered by them. And it works itself out in the wash. Not everything sticks around. I mean, I'm not going to make an argument that crazy ass is the word that we're going (laughs) to stick with or any kind of ass as a suffix, which seems to be popular these days. But Mm -hmm. things like like are actually... um, several centuries old, and they have slowly crept in so that we're using like in more and more context. Mm, And the likes that bothered people 100 years ago don't bother us today. It's the new likes that bother us. So it's just a matter of getting used to these incremental steps that language takes to a new form. And we're doing amazing things with language today, things we didn't do in the old English period, right? We have computers, we can fly planes, Mm -hmm. all of that through communication, through understanding language and language structure allows us to work as teams. So clearly we're not doing too badly, even though we've lost almost every complicated form that we had in old English. So English has from a morphosyntactic, to use a big word, view, become simpler over time. But that doesn't mean we've become simpler over time. So this idea that language is bad when it changes is really just something that our prescriptivist selves uh, like to tell ourselves. And that's just because we learn a certain view of language in school. Yeah. Um, and it's not that it's wrong in writing necessarily, because we do try to limit change in writing just so that 100 years from now, we can understand what we wrote before. But it is wrong in speaking. And in in a lot of professional contexts, we judge people because they're different than us and their language is what helps set them apart. And when we judge people on their language use or we judge ourselves and feel uncomfortable or insecure, we're not doing anybody any favors. We're just kind of holding up the progress of language. Oh, I I like that viewpoint. That's so that's so true. We're holding up it evolving the evolution of it. Wow. Exactly. <laughs> Perspective change here. <laughs> that's the goal, right? So, Just try to flip the uh, yes. way we look at language. Yeah. So now um, let's say you are an individual who uses language a little differently. And I'm sure we've all been in different spots. I mean, I was from uh, Texas to New Mexico and I moved to Southern California. So that was a big, you know, you get teased for the y'all. So (laughs) yeah. So I I went from y'all to, oh my God, I'm a Valley girl. Right. So so how do we um, maybe maintain who we are in our language while we're being judged? Right. That's a really good question. And I think everybody has been in that position of feeling like something about the way they talk is annoying or bothers them. And I've had a lot of people, especially my students, uh, tell me, oh, I hate when I do this. And then they'll do it while they're telling me they hate it. So like is the, you know, the primordial example in mm-hmm. that regard. They'll say, I like, hate how I say like all the time. I like totally don't. Yeah, I'm just kidding. And, and then they, they notice it. And then the funny thing is the rest of the class period, 
we noticed like so much that we have sometimes done a like tally at the end and mm-hmm. we are all laughing by the end of it. But the reality is um, that we have got to be more comfortable in our own linguistic skin. And part of that is the knowledge of what language is for and the structure of language. Because when we learn about language in school, we learn a very specific viewpoint of language. So tell me, for example, how many vowels English has? Can you name the English vowels? Uh, A, E, I, O, U, and sometimes Y. (laughs) Right. Well, yeah, wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a very, very well-known, you know, Uh little song that we learn when we're young about English vowels. (laughs) But actually, English has between 12 and 14 vowels, depending on your dialect. So Westerners have a few few less vowels than the rest of the the country. But English actually has a huge vowel system. Um, So if you actually say words like... You could say beat, bit, bait, bet, bat, bought, boat, boot, uh, right? And brook. All of those are different vowels. And that's way more than A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y. Um, so, you know, it's sort of this this very particular viewpoint we've been taught and we blindly believe in it. But actually, there are many more vowels than what we've been told yet even though we see evidence of it every day in our speak, we use them. We all use those vowels. Mm-hmm. We're not aware of them because we just haven't learned to look at it the right way. So all I'm suggesting is that people learn to look at language by a, as a linguist, as well as a prescriptivist, as well as a professional and understand what the system really is, because mm-hmm. then we are much more compassionate about the way that other people speak. And also we're maybe less hard on ourselves in the way that we speak uh, and like, and Senate starting. So, and in, intensifier totally. All of those are examples of language doing what it's supposed to do, which is evolve Mm -hmm. and provide us with things that we didn't have before. And all of those came into language to meet a need. And when we look at science and studies of these, the patterns of use and where they occur, and we do experimental studies of how is language done with and without them, what we find is actually they're extremely useful. There's a fascinating study with like where uh, some researchers had people tell stories and they would set put two people in a room and they'd say, okay, you're the talker, you're the listener, tell a story. So the, and it has to be a personal story. So the, the, storyteller would tell the story and they would record them and then count the numbers of likes they used and where they used them. So the very specific position. So then they take both of those people, the listener and the speaker, and they put them in separate rooms with new people. And they said to both of them, retell that same story. So the original storyteller told the story and the listener told the story to a totally new people without the other one in the room. Well, what they found that not only did the original storyteller say the stories again with likes in a ba- basically the same place, but the listener did the same thing, which means those likes are serving a purpose. They add something to the story that the listener felt was important enough to replicate those likes at the same point. Um, and it's very pattern actually where like you is typically used and it depends on the type of like. So that's a much more complex issue. But the, the fascinating thing about that study is it shows that those retellings of likes weren't just someone's intractable like habit, you know, arbitrarily throwing them in there. They were useful. They were patterned and they weren't useful just for them, but to maintain the veracity of that story, the listener used the likes in the same place. So that's really good evidence that those likes are useful. Wow. 
Well, I like that. Well, it, it's a cool I, I like that. Study. <laughs> like, yep, like it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like can be used. Like I remember from, you know, being in California, dude, it, so many different ways that you can interpret dude it and is, use it. Dude is amazing. So I, in my new book, I actually have a whole chapter on dude because really? it, is, dude. it is a fascinating, <laughs> d- I know, dude, really. Dude is everywhere. And it's mm-hmm. really actually a, quite an old word. And it meant something completely different a hundred years ago. Uh. <laughs> so in, in the 1800s, in the late 1800s, if you duded someone, it was an insult. Ooh. If you called someone a dude, it was an insult. But over, huh. and it's a fascinating tale. Um, you'll have to read the book to get that one. But the, it's of a course. fascinating tale of how it went from sort of rags to riches. So how a dude went from being an yeah. insult worthy of a duel. People would actually challenge each other to a duel. Called a dude to, to being this this word that's now like cool, hip, uh, mm-hmm. you know, sort of co- cool solidarity kind of signaling. Yeah. And you can use it when you're happy. You can use it when you're sad. You can use it to warn someone. You can use it to tell someone off. I mean, there's oh my gosh. all sorts of uses for dude. <laughs> so it's a very similar. It's a perfect example. Oh, I love that. <laughs> now back to the, um, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So one of the things I teach when I'm teaching presentations is it's fine to use those, uh, just don't overuse them. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's actually very good what advice. I'm teaching? Okay, <laughs> well, I think, let me, let me add a little complexity to it. Um, <laughs> there, as I, um, um and um actually are really fascinating because they are sort of a speech pariah. I mean, everybody who took a speech class ever in their life or read anything yeah. about how to do a proper presentation has learned don't say them. But yeah. they actually provide a lot of naturalness. And in fact, if mm-hmm. you hear someone without things like discourse markers, which are the so's and the I means and the you knows, or ums and uhs, they feel unnatural and they often can make the listener feel like they're listening to a robot or somebody that's not very relatable. So they help with making you relatable. The problem Mm. is if they get distracting, then people can only focus on your um and us. But the really interesting thing about that is there are actually two interesting things. One is um and us are incredibly useful from a cognitive perspective. And I can Mm. explain that in a minute. The second thing is what we find when we do studies looking at whether people notice your rate of um and uh-ing because some people use them a lot, some people less so. We find that generally people are not very accurate at assessing how much um or uh you used Mm -hmm. and that people don't notice them if what you're telling them is interesting. If they're interested in what you're saying, then they don't have time to kind of go, I'm so tired. I'm, I'm, (laughs) oh my God, would they stop saying uh and uh, because that's really annoying. They instead get so focused on what you're saying on the content, they're not interested in the structure. So Mm. one thing is if you are a, a fascinating speaker, if what you're telling people is interesting, they will listen and they won't notice that you have these little speech hiccups. Wow. Yeah. And then we can also get into the really useful stuff that your ums and us do. But basically, yes, I think that's decent advice. You don't want to get rid of them. They actually serve a purpose. But if yeah. you do them too much or you are focused on form rather than content and you lose people as an audience, they'll notice them and then they become a problem. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, that's great. I love that. That's great. Um, it, I, and I love the point that it makes it uh, makes you more relatable. It does. Yes. And we have studies that show that if you remove all these kinds of discourse markers and normal parts of speech that we have in everyday conversation, it does affect the way that people view you on a sociability Mm -hmm. scale. 
Oh, wow. So what else do we need to know about speech patterns? This stuff is so fascinating. Well, I will. I, I do want to talk about I mean, in terms of their usefulness, because that's actually Absolutely. a shock to most people. When you look at studies that study the psycholinguistic value, which means sort of the cognitive benefit of um and uh, why do we do them? Originally, they were looked at as speech disfluencies only, as bad things, right? As mm -hmm. things we want to get rid of, as things that were um, basically indicators of anxiety or nervousness. What we have found in psychological research is that actually they do not decrease when anxiety decreases and they do not increase when anxiety increases. Now, other speech disfluencies like false starts or repetitions or speech errors actually do tend to increase with anxiety. The more nervous we are, the harder it is to sort of sometimes say what we want to say or to think of the right word. But we don't actually find that to be the case with ums and uhs, which suggests they're not about nervousness. They must be serving another purpose. What's really interesting is when we look at where they do occur in a stream of speech. So if we have people talk and then we analyze the syntactic and morphosyntactic structure, we find that, that ums and uhs occur prior to points of greater complexity. So where we're mm -hmm. constructing very intricate sentences, very complex sentences with a lot of sentence embedding, so a lot of subordinate clauses, for example, a lot of relative clauses, a lot of hierarchical structure in the things we're saying. So we start off with this big sentence and we go on for two hours, that kind of sentence. <laughs> we do more ums and uhs before we start structuring those. So that's why we often um or uh at the beginning of a sentence is because we have the entire sentence to build versus at the end of a sentence where we just have a couple more things to say. Mm -hmm. We also find they occur before harder vocabulary items or less frequent words. So Basically, what they signal is that we're doing hard things, we're doing extra work, and we're coming up with more interesting vocabulary. So when someone uhs and uh, ums and uhs in a professional context, what that means is they're actually working hard. Mm -hmm. So if people don't um and uh when they're spontaneously talking in a meeting, then that means they're probably not coming up with a lot of complex sentence structures and hard words. When they do a lot of it, that, that means they're thinking really hard and they're trying to put together these great sentences and they're really trying to come up with perfect vocabulary. So it's really an indicator of deep thinking, which I mm -hmm. think people are generally surprised of. It's not nervousness, it's deep thinking. Yeah. The, other really fascinating thing is not only are they helpful as a speaker to help you structure your sentences and come up with vocabulary words, they kind of buy you that time. They're also excellent signals to a listener. So what they do is they say to the listener, I'm not done with the speaking turn, but hang on because I'm getting ready to give you something really good. And it does seem to carry that information to a listener. They recognize I need to be ready to do some hard unpacking. So what we find is when there's an um or a uh that precedes a word, people are better able to recall that word being used in what they were told mm -hmm. later on than when it wasn't preceded by an um or a. Uh. We also find that in retellings of stories if or, or of information that's connected, if an um or a uh occurred before a plot point, for example, in retelling a story, that plot point will be better recalled later. Wow. Um, it also makes us faster in guessing the right word because it tells us don't expect something common. Think about mm -hmm. other things that could go here. So it really wow. actually helps with listener processing. So these things that we have been the bane of public speaking are actually quite useful from both a speaker and listener standpoint. So I, I find that fascinating.
Yes. <laughs> wow. So both the speaker and the listener are benefiting from the use of these uh, quote unquote verbal fillers. Exactly. Exactly. So wow. the reason we do them is not just because we're messing up. In fact, we're not yeah. messing up. We're doing the right thing to make sure that we speak as well as possibly and uh, as possible and that our listener can comprehend it as well as possible. But yet we still don't like them. So that just shows you it's a great example of how we have these ideas about speech that aren't actually reflected in the science about speech. And when we look at the yeah. science, we find that there are all these reasons why we do these weird things we do. And they're usually pretty positive. So um and uh, but again, be careful because if you do them too much, then they mm -hmm. can be distracting. Right. I love that. So yeah. So uh, use your normal speech patterns. They're right. there for a reason. <laughs> But don't Stop feel like you have to eradicate. Stop judging yourself and others. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And don't feel like you have to change it. So I, what I yeah. tell people when they're preparing for presentations is that they should practice because the more practiced you are, the less you will amina naturally because mm -hmm. you're not doing as much cognitive processing while you're yeah. speaking because you've done it in advance, right? Yes. But one thing is helpful is to, to record yourself when you're trying to do a mm -hmm. presentation. Record yourself doing it because a lot of times we don't realize how we do fall back on very particular patterns of certain yeah. things that we like. So for me, I know when I'm teaching, my students often tell me I say right a lot afterwards. So I'll tell them, I'll me say, too. you know, we need to do this. <laughs> right? And right? I, I want everybody to be prepared <laughs> because we're going to be tested on this, right? For me, mm -hmm. that's a listenership check, which is what the yes. form of a tag question is. It's sort of making sure someone agrees with you, they're confirming, but mm -hmm. you do fall back on certain ones a lot. So sometimes my students yeah. will joke because we talk a lot about language. They'll say, do you know what your speech tick is at the end? And they'll say, it's right. You all <laughs> say, right. So one thing you don't tend to notice about yourself is how you often use the same ones and yeah. that maybe the purpose is good. But if you say the same thing, sometimes that can be construed as annoying. So listen to yourself, find out what you do, and then it can help you feel less self-conscious about it. Yes. But you should never be changing who you are through your speech. You should mm -hmm. really relish the fact that language is evolving to help us. Um, and, you know, all these things like the Senate starring so, that serves a purpose. And I know yes, it, it annoys so many people. I have a friend that's a professional and she will... Uh, literally not read email if they start with so. She said, oh. I, I won't do it. I will just delete because it annoys her so much. And I said, oh but you're missing, you're missing, you know, valuable information just because you're being judgmental. Absolutely. And it tells us, okay, there is a backstory here to what I'm about to yeah. say that you need to either think back to, or I'm going to tell you. And, yeah. and that serves a purpose. It's a function. And I don't know why we get so hung up on certain things, but it's just for a part of our culture to, you know, have speech hangups. Yeah. We're human. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. Luckily, there, there luckily. Is so, luckily, I know <laughs> there is so much we could dive in, but I know there are more resources that you have for our listeners. So can you share a little bit about your products and or services like your book? Sure. Well, my um, most exciting new project is I have a book coming out with Viking Penguin Press um, that will be, it's actually available for pre-order now. And it's called Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. And as you can tell, Like Literally and Dude will all be in there, which are some <laughs> prominent speech ticks. So that book is actually fun because it talks about social linguistics, which is what I do, but it does it in a fun way where it goes in from the features that drive us 
crazy and what they can tell us. So every yeah. chapter is a speech feature that we love to hate. But I look, I go back to the history and almost every speech feature that we love to hate, whether it's um or like or literally uh, or saying walk in or singular they, all of those features that we talk about, they actually generally have histories that go back centuries. So I walk us through the history, which actually is very entertaining and fun because a lot of times they piss people off for centuries. <laughs> um, so we learn all about the fun things that happened in history with them. But then I also look at the research and what it tells us about how those actually help us rather than harm us. And it's a really fun deep dive into all the things we love to hate. And it's uh, written with a sort of humorous bent uh, because I, I think we can always enjoy learning. So I'm really excited. I think it was really a passion project of mine, and I'm so excited to have that coming out. So that's one thing. And then I also have a blog that runs monthly on Psychology Today called Language in the Wild. So every month I have a new piece that comes out online on Psychology Today that people can check out. Oh, nice. So where can people go to learn more about you? They can go to my website, which is just ValerieFriedland.com. That's F-R-I-D-L-A-N-D, because everybody always wants an E in there. Uh Um, And that (laughs) will link you to anything you want to know. Awesome. We will make sure that gets in the show description. Wonderful. Okay, dude, it's time for your final piece of advice. Like literally? Like (laughs) literally. Time for your final piece of advice. (laughs) I think my final piece of advice is uh, an echo of what I've said all the time. Don't be so hard on yourself. Mm -hmm. You notice the things you say much more than other people do because we are about communication and people aren't listening to you to listen to what you're doing wrong. They're listening to you because they want to know who you are. And our speech tells others who we are. And that's a good thing. So stop being so hard on yourself and certainly stop being so hard on other people. Mm. Oh, I love it. Oh, thank you so much for joining us today, Valerie. Absolutely. It was a blast. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to learn more about Valerie, visit ValerieFriedland.com. Interested in expanding your employee development program? Visit ChristinaEans.com to look at the many workshops Christina has available for you.